Two words before we get to the word this morning, and you can, you can turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. The first word is congratulations. You have completed five years. Uh, what a blessing that is, and what a blessing it is to think where Caleb came from. Uh, he was in Italy. He came over to be an intern at North Shore Baptist Church. He ended up staying for the summer. He ended up staying be beyond the summer. He went to Louisville, Kentucky, got his MDiv, and then came back to North Shore, and then five years ago came with you here to plant this church. And you guys have got five years under your belt, and, and what is ahead just seems so marvelously wonderful. This merger that is potentially happening with Gateway, uh, it is such a great blessing, and all glory be to Christ. The other thing that I want to say is, uh, the other word is enthusiasm. You don't know how uh, like nostalgic and uh, heartwarming it was for me to walk in and to see your worship team interacting with one another. That has been, uh, up to this point, the, the highlight of my month, just to see these guys up here. And, and just the, the feeling that you have in a smaller church of camaraderie, um, I, I really miss what you guys have here. So please don't lose that. Please keep that enthusiasm. It is so precious before the Lord. So thank you. It's a high honor for me to be here today. I'm going to read for you the last two verses in the book of James. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. James writes, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I have a very simple two-point outline this morning. I have point number one, the explanation, and point number two, the application. The Father in heaven my heart is filled with joy right now as I have contemplated the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the prayer this morning and in the songs. Lord, as I have seen your body now assembled here in this place and I see the joy and enthusiasm that is in this place, Lord, uh, my heart is, is large right now, Lord. My heart is warm right now. So thank you, Lord, for uh, allowing me to see what I have seen today. And Lord, may these people be encouraged as they press on. We pray for our brother Caleb as he brings the word at Gateway today. We pray that you'd fill him with your spirit. Lord, also, I want to ask that as I teach the word this morning, that what I would say would be accurate, that it would be helpful, that it would be convicting, that it would be encouraging, and that above all, that Jesus Christ and his glorious gospel would be preeminent in this message today. So help us, dear Lord, through the power of your spirit, to listen and to learn, and Lord, to enjoy you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Point number one, the explanation. So James makes it very, very clear in this passage, verse 19, that he is talking to believers, those who have been born again, those who are in the family of God, because he calls them my brothers. 
And not only are these people children of God, and that is very important, but perhaps more importantly for our subject today, it is important to note that they are siblings of one another, that they are in the same spiritual family. So that's something to keep in mind in these verses. Um, Because the one that you are seeking to restore is a family member. If anyone among you wanders from the truth. Uh, The Greek word for wander comes from and sounds like our word for planet. Uh, The reason that James uses this word here is that because from our vantage point, planets do not appear to be fixed in the sky. They seem to be wandering or moving or drifting. Now James here does not spell out the cause of the drifting. Uh, He is purposefully vague here. The drifting could be a doctrinal error. It could be a moral failure. It could be unbelief. It could be relational failure within the church. It could be worldliness. It could be a lack of concern for the brethren. It could be false teaching or false doctrine. Um, It could be that there is inward sin in the person and a desire for worldly pleasure. Or it could be that the devil is seeking to devour one of us. Or it could be and probably is some sort of a combination of those things above. But what I want to point out to you is that James could not be more general. He could not be more ambiguous. There is a person who is a church member who is among you for one reason or another, and they start to drift away from Jesus, righteousness, and the church. But notice, based on verse 19, they do not wander permanently. In verse 19, it says, and someone brings him back. Now, once again, James is very open-ended with this in his description of how the restorer works and how the restoration process comes about. The restoration could be a one-on-one conversation. It could be a letter. It could be a text. It could be an email. It could be a gentle reminder, or it could come in the form of a stern rebuke. It could come through public church discipline, where the person is exposed publicly, and then the whole church goes after him. Or it could be two or three friends reaching out in love, sort of as a small group intervention. It could happen through one confrontation, one and done, it's over with, and the person comes back, or this could be a battle that goes on for months. James tells us nothing about the method or the attitude or the motive or the effort of the restorer. All we know from verse 19 is that someone who calls themselves a Christian begins to act or believe like a non-Christian, and then someone or a group of people from the church notices that this person is drifting, and they employ whatever means are necessary in order to bring the person back to repentance. Please notice also that this is not a passage of Scripture which is evangelistic in nature per se. The erring one professes to be a believer. They are a church member. They are among you, James says. This this text is talking about restoring the backslidden one, not evangelizing the one who knows nothing about the Lord at all. Now, Perhaps, ultimately, it becomes a passage about evangelism in that the person that you are going after 
it is discovered that they were never saved to begin with, and in which case you are evangelizing them. But for now, James is working off the assumption that there is a true child of God who is off the path, but they are still in sight. That is an explanation of verse 19. As you move on to verse 20, it becomes a little bit more complicated. And James spells out the benefits of winning the erring brother back to the faith. Again, look at verse 20 and see if you can detect the two benefits of winning the person back. James writes, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So there are two things that will happen when you go get that person and bring them back. Number one, you see it. That whoever brings back the sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. That's number one. And number two, it will cover a multitude of sins. So please understand here in verse 20 that this wanderer is not going to die physically. Uh, the reason we know that is because of James's use of the word soul. When James uses the word soul, he is talking about that part of us which will live forever. Uh, back in James 1.21, he says that we are to receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So James is not saying that someone is wandering from the truth and God is about to strike them dead like Ananias and Sapphira. No, he's saying here someone's wandering from the truth and you who go after them, you are going to save their soul from eternal damnation. Now this begs three questions. First question is, how in the world is it that someone who is already saved is going to have their soul saved? Does that not seem a little bit redundant? You're already saved, someone goes after you, and you are saved. It, it seems like it's unnecessarily repetitive. The second thing is that you need to, here's the second question, and that is, who in the world here is doing the saving? Uh, according to this text, it is not God the Father, it is not Jesus Christ and his precious blood, it is not the Holy Spirit, but the one that is doing the saving here is the one who brings back the wanderer from his wandering. How in the world is it that one human being can save another? And closely related, here is question number three. How in the world can a multitude of sins be covered by a fellow human being? Because only God can forgive sin. I, I, I cannot cover one of your sins, much less a multitude of your sins. And please understand here that the word cover does not mean that you sweep it under the rug or that you look the other way or you take that rusty pole and you just paint over it without sanding it down first. Like, like that's not what it means to cover. To cover here means to forgive, to forget, to erase. So the larger question is, how can one human being cover, forgive, forget the sins of another human being simply by bringing him back? Well, I want to answer those three questions, and I hope you got, you got those three questions. I hope you understand, how does a saved person already get saved? Who is the one doing the saving, and how do we cover the sins of another person? I want to, um, I want to answer that question by giving you something that I heard from John Piper. Uh, John Piper lines up five biblical truths to explain how God uses 
human agency in order to accomplish his purposes. In other words, how God keeps us saved. It is an explanation of the biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or eternal security. Here are Piper's five points, and I found them to be very, very helpful. Uh, Number one is that we are saved, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not of works, not of works, not of works. It is not of works, 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 it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. You cannot work your way to God. You cannot do enough good works in order to be saved. You cannot feel sorry enough in order to be saved. There is nothing you can do. Romans 3, 28. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We come into a right relationship with God because God loved us and Jesus died for us and Jesus was raised for our justification and we look to him and we call upon him. There is nothing you can do to save yourself Period, end of the story. You are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Observation number two is that those who are saved, those who are justified, will certainly be in heaven. All of them. Every single person who is saved will be glorified. 100% of the people who get saved will be in heaven. Romans chapter eight, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. So God has elected a people and then he has effectually called those people experientially unto himself. And those whom he called, he also justified. So everybody who gets predestined gets called. And everybody who gets called gets justified or saved. And then for our purposes this morning, here we go, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Every single person who is justified will be in heaven. Nobody drops out. Justification and glorification go together. You cannot lose your salvation. That's number two. Number three is where you really need to pay attention. This is where it might be slightly new to some of you. This is where you need to put on your thinking cap. This is the glue that holds it all together, and that is that no one will be glorified, that is, be in heaven. No one will be saved, finally, in the end, who does not continue in faith to the end. Nobody will be saved who does not continue to the end. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now, this is the quintessential passage on the, what the gospel is. And Paul writes, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. And the next word is if, I-F, if, 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 if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. This is the gospel. By that gospel, you're gonna be saved if you hold it to the end. Listen here to what Paul writes in Colossians chapter one. 
verses 21 through 23. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. How? If indeed you continue in the faith. It is necessary that you continue in the faith. Matthew 10.22, Jesus puts it this way. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, again, we are not justified in God's sight by means of hanging on to the Lord. However, what he's saying here is, if you do not hang on to the Lord, it is a sign that you were never saved to begin with. And the reason that you need to really grasp this third point is because if you become relaxed in this and you just say, well, someone has prayed a sinner's prayer or they've walked an aisle or they've signed a decision card or they have said at one time that they are saved and even for a short or maybe even a long period of time, they acted as if they were saved, but then all of a sudden they drift away and, and you say, well, you know, I'm not where I used to be. I, I, you know, I don't really have that joy of the Lord that I used to. And it's really a shame that I don't have the joy of the Lord. And really, quite frankly, I'm living in sin right now. And I have abandoned the faith. And I'm not with the people of God. And I'm not pursuing holiness. That's a real shame. But isn't it wonderful? Once saved, always saved. And I'm not saved by my works. I'm going to be in heaven. And James says, no. You're not going to be in heaven. You're not going to be in heaven. You were never saved to begin with. And for our purposes today, the reason we need to pay attention to this is because if we look out among us and we see among the brethren someone that drifts away into sin or into unbelief and we consider, okay, what's going on in their life? Well, they're not here as much as they used to be. You know, they used to seem to have the joy of the Lord as their strength. They seemed as though they used to be really into this, but now... Oh, we don't see him as much anymore. Oh, now we don't see him at all. Oh, now I heard that they're living with their girlfriend. Well, isn't it a shame? I mean, they used to be such good church members, but now they've sort of lost that loving feeling. The thrill is gone, B.B. King. You know, they're not really what they used to be. But praise the Lord, they're gonna be in heaven anyway. And James and Jesus and Paul and everybody else in the New Testament says, no, they won't be. The only people who will ultimately be there in the end are those who make it to the end. Which brings us to observation number four that John Piper points out. And that is that God himself will keep his children from finally falling away. The reason that we are going to make it to the end is because God is hanging on to us. Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. And 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9 Paul, writing about our Lord Jesus Christ, it says of him, the Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus our Lord. How in the world do I know that tomorrow morning I am going to wake up and that I will still be saved? 
Brothers and sisters, listen, the answer is not because 43 years ago, I asked Jesus to be my savior. That's not why I'm going to be saved tomorrow morning. The reason why I'm going to be saved tomorrow morning is because he is holding on to me. Left to ourselves, we will not persevere to the end. The only reason why we press on is because God is keeping us. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, he who called you is faithful, surely he will do it. And when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. He will not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. I mean, parents, you understand this. It's an icy day. You, you are walking, you are holding the hand of one of your children. It's very slippery. You don't want them to fall and, and hit their head on the pavement. And you're having a little bit of trouble yourself walking, but they can't keep their footing at all. And so you say to them, please hold my hand. And as they walk along, they reach up. The reason that their skull is not going to have a knot on it and you're going to be go not going to the emergency room is not because they are holding on to you. They're doing the very best that they can. But the reason why your child will be safe is because you have a grip on them and you're holding on to them. Now, their feet might be flailing and they might be way off balance, but they are going to be secure because you've got a grip on them. The reason that I am ultimately going to be in heaven is not because I love Jesus so much or because my doctrine is so good or because I have so much experience in the Christian life. I'm gonna be there because he's got a grip on me and he won't let me go. And if it was up to me, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. I would be long gone, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I, man, <laughs> I have tried, believe me, I have tried to wander off into the paths of sin. And it's like, you know, I'm hanging on, but he's got me and he's pulling me back. Many years ago, I was on a mission trip in Jamaica, uh, not Jamaica, in Belarus, Eastern Europe, former Soviet Union. I was with my two sons. Uh, we had some time to kill. So we were in Gorky Park in the city of Minsk. And there was a really big Ferris wheel. Now, now this Ferris wheel had two types of cars. There's the type of car where normal people sit, like they open the door and you get in and you sit down and you ride around the Ferris wheel. And then there was this, about every sixth or seventh car, <clears throat> you would sit down and they would pull something over your shoulders or strap something across your weight and, and like your legs would be hanging down and you're just kind of out in the open. I'm afraid of heights. It is a high Ferris wheel. It is slow moving. And we're getting up to get in the regular car and my son Parker says, let's get in this one where our legs dangle. <laughs> so I get in and he's in the car right beside me. He knows I'm afraid of heights and he sees it, like he can, he can smell the fear. And so what he does, he starts to poke at me and to kick me and he starts to rock back and forth. And, and, and I, I can't, like I can't punch him, there's nothing I can do. All I can do is, is hold on because so I'm so afraid. And so 
the, the ride makes it all, and I think I'm going to die. Like, I think I'm going to slip out and die. It, it was just, it's, it's horrifying. But do you know, I'm alive today. Do you know the reason why I'm alive today? It is not because I was holding on so tightly to those bars that were over my shoulders. I am alive today because the thing above my head was welded and bolted and joined and tested to whatever that thing above me was. I am on my way to heaven still. I will be in heaven ultimately, but it ain't because I'm holding on to him, it's because he's holding on to me. He will complete the work. Which brings us to our fifth observation, and that is that God keeps his children by means of his children. What do I mean by that? What does the Lord mean by that? It means that God accomplishes what he accomplishes using means. How do we have a Bible? Well, holy men were moved by the Holy Spirit and they wrote it down. Is it the word of God? Absolutely. How did we get it? God used people to write it. We're going to get to the end because God's holding on to us. But he doesn't do it through some kind of a, a, a mystical mystery that it's just, woo, you know, how, how does God keep us? God keeps us by means of one another. He uses his children to keep his children saved. God keeps his children by means of his children. It's not the only means that he uses, but it is a major means that he uses, and that's what James is talking about here. So, Hebrews 3, 13 and 14. Paul writes, I'm sorry, writer of Hebrews writes, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if, 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 Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Did you catch what that verse was saying? The writer of Hebrews says, you guys need to be talking to one another and exhorting one another. Why? Because you don't want anybody in your midst to be hardened. We're going to be saved if we hold our confidence. So help one another hold that confidence in Christ by talking to one another and being in one another's lives. Why should we exhort one another every day? Well, it is so that we can go get the wanderer and we can help to save that person's soul. John Piper says this. Eternal security is a community project. It is sure for God's elect, but not without means. Therefore, we should take one another with ultimate seriousness, end quote. In other words, being a church member means that you are here to help your fellow church members get to heaven, and they are here to help you get to heaven. James is not denying penal substitution. He is not denying the atonement. He is not denying the blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. We are saved because Jesus died for our sins and he, and he rose again. But it is also true 
that faith without works is dead. That's what James says in chapter two, verse 17. So unless works are present to give evidence of faith, then faith is not there either. And if that if those works are not there and there's no faith there, that soul will be lost. They were never saved to begin with. John says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been with of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that it might be manifest that they are never with us to begin with. So when somebody wanders from the truth and starts living in sin or stops going to church or starts believing a false doctrine, we are to go after them. And please understand, the when as to when to go after them is a really tricky thing because just like cancer, it is usually very gradual and it is usually undetected. I mean, you don't go to bed one night and wake up the next morning and say, honey, you know, I think I caught cancer. Let me go get that taken care of. No, you have cancer a long time before you know that you have cancer. That's why cancer kills you. Someone will look perfectly good on the outside, but they have begun to drift in their mind, in their heart. Usually it is secret sin. It is usually not them falling off a cliff. It is usually gradual. And when you see them and they walk in on Sunday morning, they look the same as they did the week before. I mean, a guy with cancer one week looks just like a guy with cancer looked the week before when it didn't begin to metastasize. you, You don't see it right away. Well, here's the person. They are drifting. And, and so it's not easily detected, and they are wandering in its early stages. But after a while, you begin to scratch your head and say, you know what? Yeah, maybe I'm just crazy. But it's, we used to see them like every week. Like they, you know, The Arnaud family, they were like in that row every week. And now we see them, but we don't see them as much as we used to. Ah, I guess they have a good excuse. You know, there's work and then they're, you know, Ruby's got bingo on Sunday mornings. You know, there there are things that that it would keep them from coming. But but you you and then and then as time goes on, you start to say to yourself, Yeah, not only do we not see them as much, but when we see them they are not as enthusiastic for the Lord as they once were. Something is not right. I can't put my finger on it, but something is not right. And usually by the time we detect that something is wrong, it has gotten to a very serious stage. Now, we go after the person. When we go after the person, they hear the rebuke, they thank us for coming after them, They prove that they are a believer because they come back, back to the church, back to righteousness, back to Christ, back to sound doctrine. They prove that they are saved or you go after them and they prove that they are lost because they say something like, why don't you mind your own business? Or they lie to you and say, everything's fine, we're just really busy. Or they say, you know what? You're coming after me now because something's wrong, but you really wanted nothing to do with me before now, so you don't really have the right to see me. Whatever it is, 
when they don't come back to the church to righteousness to Jesus, they're proving that they were never saved to begin with. In which case, you evangelize that person, and if you successfully evangelize that person, you save their soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So, putting it all together, Christians are prone to wander, but God will not allow his own to perish. And he uses members of the flock to go out and influence fellow believers to come back. And when that happens, they will save that soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So that's the explanation of the text. We move on now to the application of the text. And before I do, let me, I just want to say this. We live in such a privatized society and people are not in one another's lives the way that they should be. That to actually even go to someone and bring something up is extremely awkward. It's extremely awkward. But know that that awkwardness is necessary in order to rescue the person. I mean, do you understand that when Nathan went after David, David who had committed adultery and murder an obstruction of justice, that when Nathan goes after him, he is not going after David so that David's joy will be restored, although David's joy was restored. Nathan is used of God in the life of David to go after him to save his soul from death. So are you saying that David wasn't saved until Nathan went to him? No, he was saved. Are you saying that David lost his salvation? I'm not saying that David lost his salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. David didn't lose his salvation. What I am saying is that God used Nathan, the prophet, to rebuke David and to bring him to repentance so that David could give evidence of his salvation. And if David didn't repent, then as I read my Bible, I would have no reason to believe that David actually ever was saved. Consider the king who came before David, Saul. He started off really well. Tall guy, handsome guy, victories for the kingdom, doing the will of God, rescuing fellow people in the kingdom. Like he, He's starting off as a pretty good king. But then he sins. And when he sins, he is rebuked by Samuel the prophet. He is rebuked by his son, Jonathan. He is rebuked by David. And he doesn't repent, doesn't repent, doesn't repent. And at the end, what is he doing? He's off seeing a witch and committing suicide and perishing eternally, proving that he never was saved to begin with. He never received the rebuke. So too, God has people coming after you. And when they do, it is an act of love, even though it is very difficult. I mean, consider your initial salvation. You are lost. You are not interested in Christ at all. You are working in a supermarket. You are a Satanist. You are an atheist. Okay, and here's this guy in this supermarket who comes to talk to you. Initially, you don't want to hear what he has to say, but the power of God unto salvation, which is the gospel, breaks through your entire mess. You are converted. You are saved. 
that guy is an evangelist that helped you, and you can go back to that man and say, initially, I didn't want to hear what you have to say, but now I thank you because you brought me the words of eternal life. In the same way, you're wandering, you're saved, but you're wandering off in sin. When I'm wandering off in sin, I don't want anybody to confront me with it. Men love darkness rather than light. And someone comes with the light, and they shine it, in the same way, initially, we're going to think of excuses why what they're saying is not valid, and we are going to lie, we're going to equivocate, and we're going to justify ourselves. But if we really are saved, when that person brings the word to us, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit is going to work in our hearts, and eventually, we're gonna come back to Jesus' righteousness in the church, and we're gonna go to that person, and we're gonna say, thank you for loving me enough to come after me, and thank you that when I told you to mind your own business, you didn't mind your own business, but you kept coming after me. That is kind of what we are looking at here, I need to get back to my notes. Need to, need to get back to my notes. All right. Um, application. I have four of them. Number one is care. Care. Boy, based upon what I have seen so far this morning, I think you do. Like seeing the guys interact in the worship team up here, there is a warmth and a camaraderie, and a love, and enthusiasm. I, I, I don't think that you get it in too many large churches. So as you're going over to Gateway, and I think when you do that, based upon how good of a preacher Caleb is, and how good of a pastor he is, and based upon what God is doing here in this place, I think you're going to grow. I think you're going to get bigger. I don't know how big you're going to get, but I think you're going to get bigger. The bigger the church gets, the harder it is to care because it's just people just kind of start to blend in and you don't know each other as much as you did in the early days when the church was small. You need to be very intentional about caring, working together to be aware of people's spiritual condition so that you know where they are. So don't just mind your own business, but be concerned about the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters. And as I said, we live in a very privatized culture where it's increasingly hard to know what's going on in one another's lives. And the amount of effort it takes to get into someone's life is ridiculous. Now the easy thing to do would be to say, I am too busy or someone else will take care of that. And they really don't want to be bothered. Well, duh, of course they don't want to be bothered. When I'm in sin, I don't want to be bothered. Of course people don't want to be bothered. But we are called to bear one another's burdens. You know, it's always a, a joy uh, at North Shore Baptist Church when we see someone new that comes. I mean, isn't it exciting when new people come to the church, new people join the church? Praise the Lord, that, that's wonderful. It's not quite as electrifying when we see the same old members week after week. Hi, how you doing? Good to see you. I take for granted that you're here and you take for granted that I'm here. It's not quite as exciting. 
But what I think we need to do is we need to become excited about our old members and go through the church directory. And and here's your rubber meeting the road. Here's your rubber meeting the road application. Go through the directory and say to yourself, to the best of my knowledge, I think that person is doing okay. Obviously, they can hide sin. But to the best of my knowledge, I think they're doing okay. Or, you know what? Something's just not quite right there. I can't put my finger on it, but something's not quite right there. And then go after the person, or at least call them up and say, everything okay? And this is, this is a COVID message, ladies and gentlemen, because at our church, we have people who have come back to our church We have some people who have not come back at all. We have some people who have come back, but they don't come back every week. And it used to be pretty easy to understand who was there and who was not there when everything was regular. But now it's just just so convenient to to disappear. Well, why are they not back? Well, the reason they're not back is because uh, there's a, a health concern in their home or something like that, something related to COVID. Well, they must be doing okay spiritually. They sort of have this get out of church free card, which maybe maybe there actually is a health concern, but maybe they are just deep into some kind of funky sin and nobody can question them on it because of COVID. So we need to be working all the more to find out where our people are. So please, please care. Number two, put yourself in a position of accountability. Joining the church. I know, I think most of you, I do not know all of you. If you are visiting today, welcome to this church. If you are not a member of this church, you should join this church if you are a Christian. This is the best church on Long Island. You should join this church. But if you don't join this church, you should join some church. And joining the church doesn't just mean that you have your name on the roll, but that you are in relationship with one another and you are held accountable. 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So, Put yourself front and center to be seen and accounted for. Number three, keep a close, careful, consistent watch on your immediate family. I know you have to watch out for the whole church, but watch out for your family. Husbands, love your wives. Your primary discipleship relationship is the care of your wife. Wives, encourage your husbands in the Lord. Parents, watch out for your children. Siblings, be in communication with your brothers and sisters. It's a very sad state of affairs when something happens to one of the children in our church and we will go to the parent and say, okay, tell me, how is your kid doing spiritually? And they say, I have no idea. We never talk about it. We never read the Bible together as a family. We don't, I'm not really sure. I I think they're okay. They come to church with me. Deuteronomy 6, 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Watch your kids. 
And then number four, fearlessly, fearlessly go after the wanderer and do whatever it takes to bring them back, knowing this is, this is the nugget, this is the nugget of wisdom that I will give you, which will surpass all other nuggets of wisdom today. Knowing that when you do, in most circumstances, either A, they will not tell you the truth, they will tell you it's none of your business, they will do something to make you feel guilty, like you're now just calling me for the first time, why weren't you calling me all along? For whatever reason, you will, your influence will be minimized when you initially try to go after them. But what I'm saying is, you take the risk, you look through the smoke screen, and you go and do whatever it takes to rescue that person and to bring them back. And the reason why you do this is because of the great shepherd, Jesus. The gospel is of first importance. That we, as sheep, wander, and he always comes after us. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, but he didn't just die for them. He is committed, as I said earlier, to seeing you to the end. If he's always going after his sheep, you go after them too. Luke 15, 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Jesus, the kind shepherd, finds us. You are Christians. You are followers of Christ. Be like Jesus. Go after the lost sheep. Because let me remind you, what is at stake here? is heaven or hell. I'll close by saying this. You can do it with confidence. And the reason why you can do it with confidence is because of the Holy Spirit. You see, if, it's, if you're just a salesperson that is trying to convince someone to come back to your church, you might win, you might lose. The reason you can go with confidence is because, remember, this person is among you. And if they are among you, then they have the Holy Spirit. So it is not your voice, it's not your influence, it's not your love, it's not the cookies that you bake for them that you take to them that's going to win them back. What's going to win them back is the fact that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is inside them and uses the word to speak to them, and although the conscience may be seared, although the person may be hardened, although the person may be running, you cannot run from God. And so when you bring the word of God to the people of God, ultimately you can do it with confidence because God is going to bring his people back. Brothers, if any among you is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentle gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Now, we use different methods and means for different people. Jude says you treat different people in different ways. Jude 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So it takes wisdom, it takes gentleness, it takes love. But above all, 
in boldness go and get them folks and bring them back and you can do so with confidence because if they belong to the Lord, he will not let them perish. He will not let them perish. 